everybody and a welcome again to our visitors and a welcome to our international viewers our brothers and sisters and others from around the world we love you very much we thank of you constantly we pray for you constantly and we are delighted and humbled that you have been joining us for all this time for our exposition of sacred scripture some of you have been with us for over a year and we do dearly love you and appreciate you and we do we are mindful of you in our hearts and in our prayers. Please know that. Would the rest of you who are here in the flesh, and for those watching and listening, you may stand too, if you wish, to honor the reading of the word of the Lord. I'm going to start again at the top of the chapter, with chapter 3. And today we will include one verse. Verse 16. Um, I had absolutely no idea that working our way through the Gospel of John and through chapter 3 that we would even have the necessity of devoting an entire Sunday to, to verse 16. At first, I just simply didn't think that was going to happen, but somehow it just worked out that way. So today we're going to devote this morning's exposition of Scripture to what arguably is probably the most famous single verse in all the New Testament and all of the Bible. These are the words of the Lord. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, ruler of heaven and earth, Father, Son, and Spirit, bless our exposition of your eternal word. Bless our humble efforts to send the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ literally throughout the world. We thank you so much for those from many different countries who have been joining us and watching and listening, some of them for a year and a half or more now. 
We thank you for them, and we pray that our exposition of Scripture will be a blessing to their mind, to their soul, and to their hearts. And we pray that the gospel of Jesus going out from our humble efforts will draw those in who are bound for your salvation. We thank you for these words. Help us to translate these words into action in our life and be faithful to give the truth of these words to anyone and everyone who falls within our sphere of influence. Open the minds and hearts of everyone who is meeting here in person to receive the truth of your word. And bless, I pray, your flawed servant with the power of your spirit, armed with the truth of your word, to proclaim its truth honestly and clearly and authentically for all to hear and for all to respond to. We pray for everyone who has been mentioned, who needs prayer for healing, for upcoming medical procedures, for assistance from you. Reveal yourself to each and every one of us through all of these circumstances and situations as you know best and as you see fit. May everything that is done and said here this morning Bring praise, honor, and glory to you and accomplish much for the kingdom of heaven. And so may the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Verses 16 to 21 may need something of an introduction. Ah, I've already gotten the looks that I wanted. What do you mean by needing an introduction. Yes, there is something of an introduction that is needed by way of uh, properly teaching or, or explaining verses 16 to 21. I want to give you some information today that some of you may know of, but some of you may not have heard before. Obviously, well, here we are. The verse you've been waiting for. Hope you're not disappointed. A verse that has traditionally been called for centuries one of, if not the golden text of the New Testament, the golden text of the Bible. And it is a much beloved verse, a highly valued verse. There are people who are watching and listening. There are people in this room probably who came to eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord by way of the message of this, of this verse. And if you notice, it is a beautiful encapsulation of the gospel in one verse. This is the gospel, the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ in one verse. But uh, try... To a certain degree, I don't want you to erase from your memory all of the good knowledge and the good teaching you've had over the years of this verse. But again, this is material that many of you have heard, at least heard many, many, many times in your life. Try to hear it afresh, yet again, every time you hear it taught and explained. Well, it's certainly the most oft-quoted verse from the New Testament in the Bible. Much ink has been spilled over it, probably one of the most... Uh, Passages that received the most commentary, and certainly, yes, most famous and best known. Um, need for introduction. Yes, there is. I'm going to give you a bit of information again that some of you may not have heard before, and that is this. Many evangelical scholars, theologians, in particular Greek scholars and translators over the years, believe that the actual recorded words of Jesus end at verse 15. Now, I'm not speaking of theological apostates or theological liberals, those who wish to attack and debunk the historicity and veracity of the Bible. No, I mean this is coming from scholars who devote their life and would give their lives for and have given their lives to the proclamation and study of the Word of God. 
men who have the highest view of Scripture as the recorded words of God the Almighty. They believe, uh, well, a, number, a growing number of scholars believe that, again, the actual records of, recorded words of Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus, well, this conversation that becomes a lesson, that becomes a discourse with Nicodemus, Jesus quoted words actually end at verse 15. There are those who believe that, and I think they have a good, a good case, a good argument for that actually. And that verses 16 to 21 are actually the inspired words, never forget the doctrine of divine inspiration. But many believe that verses 16 to 21 are the inspired words, the inspired commentary of the inspired author, the Apostle John. Very interesting. And there's been something of a debate for some time over this, if this is indeed the case. And it's not an acrimonious debate. It's not a hot debate. It is simply the pursuit of knowledge to actually teach and proclaim God's word. Either way, don't be alarmed. Either way, don't be alarmed. If these are the words of Jesus, of course, do not be alarmed. If these are the inspired words of John, of course, do not be alarmed. Either way, they are the words of the Lord. If these are actually the words of Jesus through verse 21, obviously you are receiving the words of God the Son. But even if these are the words of the Apostle John making commentary on what we have heard from Jesus in this chapter thus far, it is still the word of the Lord, the doctrine of divine inspiration, the words of God the Spirit given to or through or by way of the Apostle John. Um, one of these days I would like to go into detail and explain this debate or explain this issue. If we were uh, studying the book of John, of course, on a Tuesday night in our Bible studies, I could explain this more in detail for you. Those who argue that these are the words of Jesus, as opposed to those who argue that these are the Holy Spirit-inspired words of the Apostle John. But unfortunately, my great frustration with Sunday mornings is I don't have that much time. I don't have that liberty. But for now, for the time being, suffice it to say... I do understand both points of view and deeply respect and appreciate them both. And I do believe that there is a, a legitimate reason to believe or to suggest because of what we find in the original Greek, the original language, and it all boils down, frankly, to a matter of language, of grammar, of semantics, and so forth, that Jesus' words may very well end at verse 15. And verses 16 to 21 are the words of John. Now, Look at the text of the Bible you're holding in your hand. Most all English Bible translations, in particular red letter editions such as mine, in which the words of Jesus are, of course, printed in red ink, the simple use of quotation marks, all of this often leads the reader to think, of course, that Jesus' words extend through verse 21, and that is most certainly possible. But uh, many believe that it's, well, frankly, it's rather difficult to say for certain from the original language. And I think this is uh, an issue that we may not know for certain. It may not be settled for certain until we speak to Jesus himself and until we hear the issue settled by the Apostle John personally. He may tell us, he will tell us as well. Again, either way, do not be alarmed. This is sacred scripture. These are the words of God. The truth contained givens and the truth contained stands and remains exactly the same. If these are the words of John through verse 21, they're inspired words, doctrine of divine inspiration, the word of God, the word of the spirit given to John. 
And John would thereby be giving explanation or further commentary on what Jesus has said, on what Jesus has taught in this conversation with Nicodemus. Further commentary on Jesus' person, his mission, the divine plan of redemption. So John would just simply be giving more explanation as to the significance of Jesus, his words, his teaching of this new birth and his mission. Now, if these are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, it remains the same. Jesus is doing the same thing. He is just simply giving more truth and explanation of his mission of the divine plan for human salvation to Nicodemus. Either way, these words are recorded for our benefit. These words are sacred scripture. They are preserved and they are recorded for the benefit of all of mankind, of all of humanity, to bring salvation to humanity from the first century A.D. to the present hour. And as we're going through this this morning and in the days ahead, pray. Somebody out there is hearing this for the first time. And somebody may be destined for salvation by tuning in, pardon the expression, and watching and listening to our exposition of this chapter of the Gospel of John. Verse 16, whether these are the words of Jesus, they may be the commentary of John on what Jesus has said through this point in this chapter. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let me offer you two other translations which differ slightly in nuance while remaining absolutely faithful to the original language. One is, for in this way God loved the world. I believe that's the correct way to translate it from the Greek. In this way God loved the world. This is how God loved the world. This is how God put his love for humanity and mankind into action by way of his son and his son's divine mission. For in this way God loved the world so that he gave the one and only unique Son in order that all who believe in him might not be destroyed but will have eternal life. And eternal life, there is that wonderful Greek expression zoen aionion, that beautiful poetic expression for everlasting or, or eternal life in the original Greek. Let me offer you this translation as well. For God loved the world in this fashion. Again, he's speaking of God's love in action for mankind, for humanity. For God loved the world in this fashion, in that he gave the unique only begotten one, in order that whoever believes in the only unique one, the Son, should not perish in the judgment, but be granted the new birth, everlasting life. Zoen aeonion. It really is wonderful beyond words. Just what is given to us in this one verse. But pardon the flawed vocabulary of the messenger this morning. We're going to try to put words to it. To teach, pray God with authenticity and clarity what is being said here. And I thought over and over and over this week, including last night and this morning, without any exaggeration, without any hyperbole applied, whatever. This really is the greatest truth ever given. Right here in this one verse. It is the greatest truth ever given or ever heard by a human being. The best news that anybody will ever hear, has ever heard. And actually, nothing is more important. I'm not elevating myself. I'm elevating the message. I'm elevating he who is this message. 
Nothing that you hear or that you study or that you will be confronted with in this life is more important than this. Nothing. Nothing. And this message will never be stopped. Do you know that there is a Christian sister in the state of Virginia who even as we speak is being persecuted by a Virginia state agency for putting John 3.16 on her website and saying Jesus loves you? That's where we are. That's where we are. There's a showdown coming in this country, in this world. Make no mistake, prepare for it. But I'm here to tell you that John 3.16 will never be silenced. It will never be suppressed. It will never be stopped. And those who wish to do so are achieving nothing more than just bringing down the judgment of God on their own heads. This message will continue to be taught. It will continue to be proclaimed. It will continue to be read. And it will continue to bring souls into the eternal kingdom of the Christ. It will never be stopped or suppressed. It will never end until the one and only unique Son of the Father Himself returns again in His second advent, in glory and in judgment. And so this verse begins as something of an extended reflection, doesn't it? It really is something of a commentary, an explanation, either by Jesus Himself or by our dear brother, the inspired Apostle John, whatever the case. These verses 16 to 21... I should have told you to read over 16 to 21 very carefully last week before we arrived at verse 16 this week. Does, does this sound familiar to you? Verses 16 to 21? This is one of the reasons why we think these are the words of John. Verses 16 to 21 is simply echoing or restating much of the truth that was given to you in the prologue. In the prologue which opens the gospel. Again, verses 16 to 21, it's an echo. should sound familiar. It's a restatement of many of the great themes of the inspired prologue. And that's why, one of the reasons why we believe these may be the inspired words of John. Remember the prologue. Never forget the prologue. I'll remind you of that all the way through our journey through the Gospel of John. Never forget the truth of the prologue. Absolutely everything that you see, that you read, that you encounter in the remainder of this gospel, it must be seen, it must be understood, it must be received through the truth that John gave you in the prologue about Jesus, the divine word who was in the beginning, who became flesh to win salvation for lost humanity. Let me give you a few examples of, of a echo or a restatement of the prologue one notice the term the world we hear this term the world we hear this word world or the world again cosmos or cosmon which i explained to you when we went through the prologue cosmos or cosmon in some contexts it can mean yeah the world planet earth the planet on which we live but it could also mean creation many believe it can also refer to the, the to the entire universe but in this context the world means this, mankind, humanity, human beings who inhabit this world that God created. That's what the world means here in verse 16. And the word world is used only one time since the prologue, if you remember, but now it's used five times in these verses that we're in now. Two, uh, notice the use of the word light, the concept of light, in particular spiritual light. Light occurs five times 
as well in these verses. And again, we encounter the word light for the first time since what? The prologue. And a third reason, number three, the very important word monogenes, which I hope I adequately explained to you when we were going through the prologue. Monogenes, which describes the person, the being of Christ, God the Son. Monogenes, in the old King James and earlier translations, we read only begotten. I believe probably for modern English speakers, the best way to translate monogenes is the one and only unique son. The one and only unique son of the Father. This expression occurs in this gospel only here, outside of the prologue. Now, again, reasons for many believing these are the words of John. John reminding us of the truth given in the prologue. And Edward Clink, in his commentary, uh, he made a very interesting point, I thought. Uh, he's examined uh, classical literature, what we call literature from the classical world, the world of antiquity, the ancient world, uh, the Greco-Roman world. And he noticed in his study of uh, literature at this time outside of the Bible, written in Koine Greek, that it was very common for the author of a Greco-Roman prologue at this time to continue to make commentary on the action of all the subsequent scenes in his written work. And that's exactly what the Apostle John uh, does here, perhaps, or does through the Gospel. Yet, please don't, please don't come to the conclusion that I'm saying we need to separate these verses. We need to detach these verses. Oh no, absolutely not. 16 and 21 are part of verses 1 to 15. They're not to be separated or detached in any way. They're to be read and understand as a whole, as a unit. They have to remain together whether these are the words of Jesus or John. But verses 16 to 21 are what? It's a very necessary commentary. It's a very necessary interpretation on what has taken place in this chapter up to this point. You see, greater insight has to be given, has to be explained. And you also see what's happening here? Think about this. Think about what's happening in verse 16 to 21, whether it's John or whether it's Jesus. From verses 1 to 15, you have been given this very intimate, probably very quiet at the time, very private conversation between two men at night. It begins very small. It begins micro. Now, all of a sudden, look what happens in verse 16. The picture enlarges dramatically, cosmically, worldwide. You go from the micro to the macro. Let me explain it this way. Um, as I like to say, you're given the big picture. All of a sudden in verse 16, you're given the big picture of God's plan of salvation for the world, for humankind, for humanity. You're given what theological circles in the seminary call the meta-narrative. Or the overarching story, the overarching narrative. Let me put it this way. In verse 16, you're, you step back and you're given the God's eye point of view. The God's eye point of view. God's eye view plan of salvation for lost humanity. God's plan in and for this quote-unquote world. Now the interpretation, the commentary given, you also, have you also seen what he's saying? You're seeing the motivation behind the plan. You're seeing the unseen hand of God, cosmically or worldwide, in and for this plan of redemption for humanity. And you're also seeing what motivates God 
What motivates God to devise this plan and to enact this plan? Which is to send the divine son into history to end salvation for humanity. What is the motivation behind all of God's actions? What is it? For God what? For God what? Loved. The motivation behind it all is God's love. Agape. Agapao in the original Greek. That wonderful word which is much used and much abused in some circles, much bandied about. Agape, by the way, it's the first time that agape love appears in this gospel. Agape agapao. And I frankly interpret this word in the hands of the inspired apostles to be the highest, noblest, truest form of love. Love which can come only from God. Love which is part of God's very nature and God's very character. A love that I do not believe human beings can manufacture inherently or intrinsically within ourselves until we are born again. Love which is a gift to humanity from God. And at the new birth, we possess that love ourselves. We are to reciprocate that love back to God. And we are to shed that love abroad, as Paul would say, to our Christian brothers and sisters. Agape love, the highest, noblest, purest form of love of all. Love that is a very part of the divine being's nature and character. That is his motivation for giving salvation to lost humanity, to lost mankind. So in verse 16, you're given the insight, the understanding into God's actions, the understanding and insight behind the mission of the divine son. For God so loved, or in this way, God loved the world. God loved the world in this way. God's love for the world was put into action in this way. That's what verse 16 is saying. This tells us that the reason, the purpose, the motivation behind the mission of the word made flesh the motivation behind all of the teachings and all of the actions of Jesus, He who is the divine Word made flesh, is what? God's love for the world. God's love for the world. God's love in action by way of His plan in and through this world. Now, I know most of you folks have heard this many, many, many times, and you're already tempted to check out on me. Don't do that. Hear this afresh as if for the first time all over again. And there's something about this that should bring us to our knees absolutely every single solitary day that we live in worship and in gratitude. And that is God's love. God's love for the world. Does this world deserve God's love? Absolutely not. We are all cosmic traitors guilty of cosmic treason against the high king of heaven. He could have scrapped humanity in the early days of the garden when humanity first fell. He could have obliterated them then and had nothing more to do with it and had been perfectly joyful in and of himself in his very being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity. But he didn't. He didn't scrap humanity. He didn't give up on humanity. He didn't leave humanity to the consequences of our evil, our total self-destruction. No, he didn't do that. God loved the world. With the love of his very character, his nature, and his being. The highest, noblest, purest, most selfless form of love of all. He loved this world. He loved fallen, sinful humanity that had egregiously, disgustingly rebelled against him. That is amazing. That is amazing grace, as old Pastor Newton's wonderful hymn says. Never lose the sense of wonder and the sense of awe 
proclaimed that should be inspire you in the truth that is proclaimed in this verse. God the Almighty so loved this world and so loved wretched, self-worshipping, evil, flawed humanity and mankind. He didn't leave us to our own devices and our own destruction. He devised a plan motivated by His love to save us from ourselves and from one another and from the evil one. You see what he's saying here? John or Jesus. Everything that Jesus says or does in his mission that you're going to read and hear in this gospel, it is all rooted in the love of God. The agape love of God. God's loving nature seen in the divine plan. And take note, again, I should mention, this is the very first time that the word love, the word agape, appears in this gospel. And the object for God's love is the world. That's amazing, folks. Absolutely amazing. Never lose a sense of wonder and awe and gratitude over that fact. And interestingly enough, this is the only time in this gospel, it is the only time in the New Testament that God is said explicitly to love the world. God's love for the world is stated or paraphrased in different ways throughout the New Testament. But this is the only time in this gospel, the only time in the New Testament, that God is said explicitly to love the world. Now, I think I should say this as well. Because every time I proclaim the truth of God's word, I also have to work against all of the false gospels that are circulating around America and elsewhere. And the very concept the notion, the knowledge of the love of God has been much abused in our country. We have turned the love of God into something childish, silly, superficial, sappy, and sacred. We're treating God as if He is a pushover because He loves us. Pardon me for using that expression. God is not a pushover. His love is not to be abused. His love is not to be taken for granted. And His love is not to be blasphemed. I encourage you to read a book. It'll be a jolting book, a heavy book. But one of D.A. Carson's books, I believe it's called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Notice he entitles it The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. We should love God because He first loved us. But never take advantage of the love of God. God is not some sort of cosmic grandfather pushover. He is the sovereign of the universe who has graciously extended love to us that, frankly, we do not deserve. Now, last week, remember, of course, Jesus said to Nicodemus that he, the Son of Man, that's right, this divine Son of Man prophesied by the prophet Daniel, that he, the divine Son of Man, must be lifted up as Moses hoisted aloft that copper snake in the depths of the wilderness. And of course that meant, as you, I hope, recall, to be lifted up, he is referring to his atoning sacrificial death on our behalf. When he says he is to be lifted up, he's also speaking of his resurrection and his exaltation, the conquest of his work in his first mission. So the very purpose of the only unique son's mission is to be lifted up. And to be lifted up, that act is rooted and grounded in what? The love of God. The magnificent, almost incomprehensible love of God. The Son's divine mission is the consequence of the love of God. 
God's loving nature in action. God gave his very best. Reminds me of Oswald Chambers. I know some of you folks in here are Oswald, Chamber, Oswald Chambers fans. That's what you should be. Remember his beautiful uh, devotional, My Utmost for His Highest? God gave his utmost and his highest. To save us. Well, let me put it this way. To save me. God gave us his utmost and his highest. He gave the one and only unique one, the second person of the Trinity, the son of his very bosom of his being, the divine son when putting his love into action, this divine plan of salvation. And take note, this is important as well. Think, put yourself in the shoes or the sandals of a first century Jew. Put yourself in the robes of the religious elite of the first century A.D. in Jerusalem. Put yourself in the robes or shoes of Nicodemus. God loved the world. God loves the world, the entire world, all of humanity. You mean those pagans? You mean those Gentiles? That would be surprising. It would be shocking to a first century Jew such as Nicodemus. The Jewish people, of course, had long known of God's special and particular love for the people of Israel, the chosen people, the chosen race, those who were to be a light to the Gentiles, those who he would use to bring the Messiah into the world, who would bring salvation into the world, but they had tragically lost sight of that fact. The fact that the Messiah would bring salvation to the whole world, it's in the Old Testament. But remember Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, didn't know his Old Testament at this time, not as well as he should have. And they lost sight of the fact that salvation was to be for all people. So this would be scandalous to many first century Jews. God's love for the whole world, all people, the Gentiles. Salvation for people all over the world, all ethnicities. The kingdom of God, yes. This verse says the kingdom of God will be populated and inhabited by people from all over the world. All ethnicities, yes. That's the purpose. That's the plan. God's original plan will succeed. By that I mean his original plan for human beings in the first place. When he first created human beings and put them in this perfect world, this perfect environment, to know him personally and to bear his image. That plan will succeed. He could have scrapped the plan, but he didn't. That plan will be carried out. God's original plan for humanity. God's love will restore a called out people, a new humanity altogether by way of this new birth. New people, new men and women from all over the world, Jew and Gentile alike, to fulfill God's original intent and purpose for quote unquote the world, to live with him and to enjoy him and to glorify him forever in a perfect world, a perfect creation, a perfect environment, the original plan, Zoe and Aeonion, life in the age which is beyond all ages for ages and ages and ages and ages. The arrival of God's Son, the Messiah, the Word made flesh, verse 16 tells us, was a gift. We didn't deserve it. It's a gift. God gave the one and only unique Son of the Father. Here's another takeaway from this verse. That we should never lose the wonder of it. And should be grateful for it every day that we live. God gave His Son. He gave the gift of His Son. He gave His Son on mission as a gift to evil, self-worshipping humanity. 
that didn't deserve it. This is, without any exaggeration whatsoever, the most magnificent gift of God to humanity ever imaginable. Literally, the original Greek reads that his son, the one and only unique one, he gave. That he, God, his son, the one and only unique one, son of the father, he, the father gave. So you see, much, if not all of the emphasis is on the magnificence of the gift, the son himself. The second person of the Godhead becoming incarnate taking upon himself a human body and a human nature. The word of the prologue becoming flesh to enter history by divine plan in order to save, in order to offer this new birth eternal life and to save humanity who deserves God's judgment from God's judgment. That they may not enter the judgment, but as Jesus says to Nicodemus, to see, to enter the kingdom of God. What is meant by gave? Gave for what? God gave his son as a gift for what? God gave his son unto death. This gift is a sacrificial gift. An atoning sacrificial gift. He gave his son as a gift unto death. As an atoning sacrifice for the sins and rebellion and evil of humanity. The divine son came to take God's judgment on himself in order to offer pardon and salvation to fallen human beings. That always strikes me with absolute... My vocabulary is failing me. Pardon the slang expression. It just blows my mind. Because if you read the remainder of the New Testament, when the Son come back, comes back, He will be the divine judge. God the Father places judgment in the hands of the Son. And the Son will be the final judge on the day at the end of history as we know it. But in his first advent, the divine judge stepped down off of the bench and took the penalty of the condemned himself. He took our punishment that we deserve on himself. How is that for a gift? The most magnificent gift, yes, cosmic in scope, that God could ever possibly give to his sentient creatures that he has created. That we might not enter the judgment, but the kingdom. Most important takeaway from this passage, or certainly one of the most. The giving of the Son is the greatest manifestation and demonstration of the love of God ever in all of creation, in all of history. Let me say that again. The giving of the Son, according to verse 16. The giving of the Son, Christ himself, is the greatest manifestation and the greatest demonstration of the love of God ever. Period, full stop, end of story, as the man says. D.A. Carson, allow me to quote him from his commentary. He writes, the result of the love of God for the world, the mission of the Son. His ultimate purpose is the salvation of those in the world who will believe in Him, believe in the Son. Whoever believes in Him experiences this new birth from above, has eternal life, is saved from the judgment. The alternative is to perish in the judgment, to lose out on eternal life in this kingdom, to be doomed to destruction. There is no third option. End quote. Again, remember, 
God doesn't leave mankind to itself. And he very well could have. He put his love for the world into action so that his son, the one and only unique one, he gave with this purpose and goal in view, that those who believe, who repent, who surrender, who submit to his person and his reign and his rule, with an all-abiding trust and confidence, they may have zoen aionion, life in that age which is beyond all ages. And we know very well that this gospel has been taught and will be taught and proclaimed to people the world over. As a matter of fact, it's being proclaimed the world over right now at this very second, at this very moment, to thousands of people all over the world, literally on the other side of this planet. They're hearing it right now, and they'll hear it today and tonight and all through the week and for days and months to come. And many will hear, and they will believe. Also, we know according to divine plan, which is somewhat beyond our comprehension. Obviously, not everyone who hears will believe. There are those who will hear and who will hear repeatedly, and they will refuse to submit and to believe. But whoever does believe, whether Jew or Gentile, they will have eternal life. As verse 16 says, that those who believe in him should not perish. This reference to perishing, it does not mean physical death. Though... The person born anew is ultimately saved from physical death. Now you may say, what are you talking about? We all physically die and will until Jesus comes back. Yes, we do. But you are ultimately saved from physical death. Because when you physically die in this life, the soul doesn't cease to exist. The soul is alive forevermore. If you have the new life, if you've been born anew, it's not a matter of a cessation of existence. It's a matter of geography. It's a matter of location. But at the end of human history, as we know it, when the divine son returns, your body will be raised, immortal and incorruptible, enjoined to the soul, never to be separated again. And you will never experience spiritual or physical death ever again, ever. So yes, in that way, you are ultimately saved from physical death. But physical death here, those who believe in him should not perish. That doesn't mean physical death. It means that those who believe in him, who believe in the lifted up son of man, will not perish in the final judgment of God. The perishing here refers to the final condemnation. Everlasting perishing. Those who rebel against God and remain in that rebellion will be banished from the presence of God's love. Will dwell forever in the presence of divine wrath. The principle according to Henriksen, and he's right, a principle which begins somewhat in the here and now but will not reach its full and terrible culmination for both body and soul until the day of judgment, the consummation of God's plan in and for history. Thank God, conversely, on the other hand, we close with this. Those who believe in him will have eternal life. That's the good news. That's the euangelion. That's the true gospel of the person and work of Jesus of Christ, that those who believe in him will not perish in the final judgment, but that those who believe in the son sent from the father will have eternal life. And again, that wonderful phrase, that wonderful expression, zoen aionion, a life which is in the age, which is beyond all ages for ages and ages and ages. This wonderful reality, by the way, I don't know if you've noticed this, it's the first time it appears in this gospel. This word, this phrase, this reality of eternal life, it's important to John. 
Eternal life will appear 17 times or more in this gospel. And eternal life will appear six times or more in the Apostle John's first letter to the New Testament churches. And it always means this. Please understand what this eternal life means. Let me explain this to you in closing. Zoen aeonion, eternal life. It means this. It means a transcendent life. It means an above and beyond superlative life in a superlative degree in every way that you can possibly imagine. It is a truly transcendent life. A transcendent life that is not only totally different from this life in quantity, that is the length of life, but it is also a transcendent life, meaning an advanced quality of life. It doesn't just mean the quantity of life. It means a quality of life that is transcendently better than life as we know it here. It's a transcendently better life than anything that you and I experience in the here and now, as we say. It is a holy life. Let me say that one again. It is a holy life. You will truly be made holy. You will be a holy creature, a holy being, which will truly mirror and reflect the very nature and character and personality of God himself for forever without flaw. That is the original reason why you and I were made in the first place. Thereby, it will be a pure life. It will be a pristine life in every way that you can possibly imagine. It will be a perfect life in thought and in word and in deed. No imperfections, no flaws anymore forever. Now here's a mental exercise for you. It's not just for the kids, it's for you old people as well. Try to, try to imagine this. Try to imagine a perfect life. Try to imagine being completely morally pristine. Try to imagine being holy. Try to imagine a perfect life in a perfect environment, a perfect existence. Really put the gray cells to work and try to imagine that. It will be quite the mental exercise because we've never experienced that. But you will. Get used to the thought. Get used to the reality. And go ahead, try to imagine what it's going to be like. It will be a life in the personal presence of God. Now again. It will be a life in the personal presence of God. The personal presence of God such as you have never experienced before. You will see God. You will see Him. You will experience Him. You will be in His personal presence with absolutely no boundary, no gulf, no barrier in between at all. That's what eternal life is. It is a life of true peace. I could use that. Peace. True peace. God's peace. Never to be ruffled, never to be challenged, never to be disturbed ever again. God's true peace. Contentment. Could you use that? True contentment. True satisfaction. True fulfillment in every way that you could possibly imagine. And it's pure. It's holy. Nothing wrong with it. You will receive reward beyond what you deserve, beyond your wildest dreams. And yes, you will have that satisfaction and fulfillment that you've always wanted and that we rarely have. 
in life this side of eternity. I don't know about you, but the older I get and the more I'm made to spend in this evil world, I want this. I want this. I've got to have this. And he promises it. And last of all, for those of you who are very active, and we should all be active in one way, shape, or form or another, you'll have a life of true and lasting accomplishment. Pardon me for becoming a pulpit pounder. I realize now I literally did that. Please forgive me for that. Boy, the unbelievers would have a good time with that one. Pardon me for being a pulpit pounder this morning. Have you ever thought of true and lasting accomplishment? Perfect accomplishment? Everything you set your hand to is success? Is an accomplishment? Really is? And it never goes away? And nobody or nothing can ever take that away from you? That's Zoe and Aeonion. Lasting accomplishment. Accomplishments which really do please God, which really make him happy, which really gives him delight. And you will be able to do that in the very physical presence of the word made flesh himself. You'll be able to talk to him and touch him in the flesh at last. And you will never be separated from him again. And you will be never separated from the people of God ever again. Ever. That's Zoen Aeonion. That's what verse 16 offers. All of this, pleasing to God, pleasing to others, pleasing to ourselves. A life truly in harmony. You know how many times do we bandy around that expression, oh, I want to be in harmony with this or that. We usually use it in some saccharine, silly manner. Let me use it, I hope, in a profound way. If you have the new birth of chapter 3, if you are given the eternal life of chapter 3, then you will have an existence in which you truly will live in harmony with everything and everyone in the created order at last. You will live in perfect harmony with all of the animals. You will live in perfect harmony with all of nature, with the literally the physical nature, the environment around you. And you will live in complete and total harmony with the Creator God. At last, and in total harmony with all other human beings who have been born again and who populate the kingdom of heaven along with you. You see, the life that's described in chapter 16 is a life that is and must be truly and totally appropriate to the age which is beyond all ages. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Christ. And so, yes, it is life on a profoundly different scale and order from anything that we experience this side of life. The last word of the day I'll give to William Hendrickson from his wonderful old commentary. He makes a very important point about how this everlasting life of verse 16 comes to us. He writes, In order to receive this everlasting life, one must believe in God's only unique or begotten Son. It is very important to remember this fact that Jesus mentions the absolute necessity of regeneration, the new birth, before he speaks about faith or belief. 
The work of God within the soul precedes the work of God in which the human soul cooperates. And because faith and belief is accordingly the gift of God, as the New Testament tells us, its fruit, which is everlasting life, is of course also God's gift. God gave His Son. God gives us the faith to embrace the Son. Thereby He gives us everlasting life as a gift, as a reward for the exercise of this faith. In the Son. To Him be the glory forever and forevermore. Amen. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Word made flesh, the Son of God, the Son of Man who must be lifted up. And so that by believing in His name, you may have Zoen Aeonion and all that it means. Forever and forever, world without end. Amen. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to teach and proclaim the best known and loved verse in perhaps all the divine library. We pray, Sovereign God, that you would bless our humble efforts. Bless our humble efforts, not only here, but worldwide. Let this message strengthen the souls of our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted some of who are in mortal danger, even as I pray. Let the hope, the reality of eternal life, strengthen them to stand fast in you and to continue to spread your kingdom in this world. And may these proclaimed words of the Lord Jesus and our inspired brother John bring many souls to repentance and to the new birth and eternal life. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Word made flesh, we pray. Amen.